Oh, hello there. You surprised me. I wasn't expecting company quite so soon. I haven't even had time to clean up. Here, let me sweep away these old bones. Get away, Edgar! Shoo! Damn cat. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yes. Tonight's entertainment. First, you should put on your evening wear, because we're invited to the big party at Prince Prospero's. I'm told it should be a scream. Just don't wear red. After we escape from that, we'll have to don our wet work clothes, because we have an original story called Rain. So settle in, dear listener. For now it's time to listen to the dark. The Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body, and especially upon the face of the victim, were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress, to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, 
There were improvisatori. There were ballet dancers. There were musicians. There was beauty. There was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the red death. It was towards the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade, but first let me tell of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here, the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now, in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood, opposite to each window, a heavy tripod bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illumined the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme. 
and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment, also, that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang. And when the minute hand made the circuit of the face, and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that, at each lapse of an hour, the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound. And thus the waltzes before seized their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company. And while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows, as if in confused reverie or meditation. But, when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows, each to the other, that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embraced three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock. And then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But, in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed, in great part, the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great feat, and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. They were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of what has been since seen in Harnani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. There were much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams, and these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms, and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon, there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet.
And then, for a moment, all is still, and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again, the music swells, and the dreams live and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many-tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls, and to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life, and the revel went whirlingly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzes were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened. Perhaps that more of thought crept, with more time, into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure, which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence, having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz, or murmur, expressive of disapprobation and surprise, then, finally, of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms, such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out-Heroded Herod and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger, neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot 
in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet, all this might have been endured, if not approved by the mad revelers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, were besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzes, he was seen to be convulsed in the first moment with a strong shudder, either of terror or distaste, but in the next his brow reddened with rage. "'Who dares?' he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him. "'Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements.' It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince, with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who, at the moment, was also near at hand, and now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him, so that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person, and, while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centres of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first. Through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, and through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger, and had approached, in rapid impetuosity, to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which, instantly afterwards, fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, 
Summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment and, seizing the mama, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they had handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay, and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. here again. When it comes, it comes in days. One, two, three days of rain. Rarely four, but sometimes. During the stretch, I often find myself looking up at the sky, willing the clouds to break up. I get lost in this act, and people have to remind me to stop wasting time at work, or the car behind me in traffic gives me a go on the horn. I can't blame them. They don't know what I do about rain. The more I think about rain, the more I get lost in it. It's an amazing thing to see the world transformed by the wet. Our reality becomes a different world. Things are slippery and impermanent. Yet we think nothing of it. When the dry comes again, it's like that big wet never existed. So what do I know about rain that nobody else does? I'll get to it soon. But for you to understand, to really understand, I have to start from the beginning. That beginning was in a moldy old bungalow on the East Coast, around 1993. That's when and where I grew up. My family was modest. My dad worked hard and didn't have a lot to say, whilst my mother held everything together with grim conviction that this was her lot. We got by, and I was happy. I didn't particularly like school, Instead, I liked wandering, and I was allowed to wander around quite a bit as a kid. Pretty far, to be honest. Not that I let my mother know just how far 
My best friend at the time lived next door, Kit. When I remember about him and me, I suppose that he was actually pretty rotten. But you don't really choose your friends when you're a child, do you? They just seem to happen. So it was that him and me wandered for a time together. Around the beginning of that February, a storm rolled in that was big and nasty. My grandmother was staying with us at the time. She was very old, but she was still bright sometimes. When she saw the rain come sheeting down outside and the palms blowing all horizontal, she held her rosary in her hands and began counting the beads with her fingers, her eyes never leaving the window. Rain, rain, go away. Come again another day. Rain, rain, go away. Never show your face again. She was saying this rhyme in her stilted English. Then she turned to me, both of us lit by the grey light of a rainy day while water streamed down the window glass, and we said the rhyme together. She passed on the following year, and that's the strongest memory I have of her. That rain lasted a whole week. I remember because it was on the third day of seven that Kit vanished. He had simply wandered out, as he often did but without my company, and didn't come back. His mother and his sisters and us were taken out to look for him that day, all while the rain came down. But we found no trace of Kit. Neither did the police when they were called, during the storm nor after it. It's in the public record that Kit is still out there somewhere. Another happy face in a photograph that makes people sad, staring out from his missing person's profile, frozen in time. My friend of everlasting youth. But I know better. On the fourth day of the big wet, I was maybe feeling blue. I suppose I was, considering the storm was rolling over and my best friend was still missing. My parents had gone out to join the search to look for him and had forbidden me to take part. So I was stranded. Me, the house, my grandmother, and the storm. Considering that much of what my grandmother did was sleep, I was more or less alone. It was during this loneliness that the idea struck me of where Kit was. He had gone to one of our secret places, a haunt we called the island. The more I thought of it, the more the idea made sense. He had set off on one of our makeshift rafts, into the river, headed to the island, and once landed there, was simply unable to return because of the flood. In my excitement of having hatched this theory, which I believed must be the terrible truth, I surmised that every second now became important to Kit's survival. To wait for my parents to return would surely be too late, and the phone lines had been brought down in the storm. I couldn't call anyone. 
After putting on my raincoat and gumboots, I set out into the sheeting rain to save my friend. On my way out, I could barely hear Grandmother snoring away in the bedroom. A comforting sound, just below the blanket of rain. Then I slammed the door shut and could hear it no more. By the time I made it to the mangrove forest on the banks of the river, my clothes were wet through. Such was the wetness of the world at this point that when I stepped onto the mud bank, my feet quickly sank in up to my ankles. I lost one gumboot there to the suction of the mud. The river was swollen, way past any height I'd ever seen it. When I made it to the secret spot where Kit and I had hidden our wooden rafts, it was half submerged, but I could clearly see that Kit's raft was gone. I felt a prickle of excitement, and also of a little pride. I was, after all, on the right track, like Sherlock Holmes. I don't remember seeing anybody else out in that weather. Not that I could see very far, maybe a few hundred meters or so. But if they had been there, they would have seen a strange sight. A small child, up to his waist in a flooding river, pulling a rickety raft out of the mangroves with all his might. Even stranger still, when that child finally got his raft out on the water truly, and untied a makeshift oar from the side of it, and began paddling hell for leather towards a very small island, completely covered with green shrubbery. The current was stronger than I was used to, had expected, and my arms quickly began to tire. Various lost things floated past me on the current. Things I had never seen before on the water. Plastic bottles, tangled netting, a tennis racket, traffic cones, shoes... They drifted across my path as I desperately kept my line so that I would not be swept down the river and out to sea. My exertions were not in vain. Slowly but surely, the islands loomed large in front of me. What once looked very small, a tiny outcrop peeking out against the flooded river, now took on some of its former glory. It looked just as shadowy, filled with a heavy darkness, as when Kit and me first landed on a sunny day some aeons ago, it seemed. The difference was that it was half underwater, which only heightened its ominous nature. My arms felt like jelly as I forced the last few paddles, which served to bring my raft into a tangle of mangrove branches, which were just above the waterline. One hooked my raft and braced it against the current, allowing me to scramble onto it, much like a waterlogged rat scrambles. When I made it to the shore, my feet sank again into the soft mud, but this time I kept my remaining boot. If you've ever walked amongst the mangroves on the banks of a river, you'll know there are, dotted amongst the muddy sand, little stalks sticking upright like fingers. Amongst these I walked, and my one bare foot was poked painfully by these upreaching saplings. And still the rain fell. The roar of it filled my ears, 
Everywhere around me was the sound, the taste, the smell, the feel of water. Into this wall of water, I tried to call my friend's name. It hardly echoed. The sound was simply eaten up and dampened by the rain. Again, I called. Then I screamed, and he replied. Here I am, he said. From exactly where I couldn't tell, only that it was further into the island. I screamed his name again, and pleaded for him to lead me to him with his voice. He obliged, and for the next few minutes we played this game: call and reply in the rain. I would scream, and in reply he would say, "I am here," or simply, "Here." All the while, pushing farther into that little island, tangling and untangling myself in branches and roots that were never meant to be traversed, my legs by now were covered in mud, but mercifully I still retained my remaining boot. It was when I reached what I imagined to be the source of the voice, for I was no longer entirely sure I wasn't making it up in my head. That I saw the stone man. It must have been at least six, perhaps even seven feet tall. It was thick and solid. Some might say crudely carved, giving the impression that it had been hewn from one tall obelisk. Its features were squat and stolid. Its neck hardly even discernible from its head, which bore a terrible expression. The eyes and mouth wide open. As if frozen in a scream, from all of which gushed water. This water ran down the front of its body like a type of sickly discharge, one that never seemed to end. As strange as this sounds, it might have looked more alarming, but the way in which its whole surface appeared to be worn smooth by the flow of the water made it look like it belonged in this world of the storm. For a few moments, I don't know if it was seconds or minutes, I was there, alone with that statue on that tiny island. It wasn't here the last time we came, but here it was, as if it had floated down and landed with the storm, its wet eyes wide and its mouth screaming with water. I too would have screamed. I'd felt it welling up in my throat. And for a moment, I wondered if I would try, and only eject liquid, just like the statue. I was about to find out when Kit appeared from behind it. He simply stepped out to the side of it, as if hiding behind the stone had been the most natural thing in the world. He was wearing his raincoat with the hood up, and like me, he was wet through. Kit, I said, relieved. I moved towards him, but stopped short. There was something in the back of my head that told me to. Instead, I looked at him, and saw that despite the fact it was undeniably my friend, I couldn't quite see all of his face from under that hood, just his mouth. Kit, I said again. For a few seconds, all he did was stand there, next to the stone. Then. 
He slowly placed a hand on the arm of the thing. I can't explain it, but the very idea of touching it made me dizzy, and I stumbled where I stood. His mouth, which had been expressionless, then began to curl into the half-moon of a smile. It parted its lips to speak, but to my horror and disgust, clear bubbling water began to stream out of it. Here I am, he said, in a voice that was all gurgles and bubbles. Slowly and deliberately, he raised his other arm in my direction and made a beckoning motion with his hand. Then, with the same deliberate slowness, brought one foot forward. It sank into the earth with a bubbling squelch. Then his other foot swung forward. In this manner, he shambled towards me until he was close enough that I could discern that his mouth was not the only place where water sprung from. Streams of it ran down his legs and pooled in muddy pockets, far more than could be accounted for by the rain. The half-moon's smile spoke again as he advanced. Come with me, it said. All of this under the unblinking gaze of the insane stone marker, which stood motionless but saw all. Faced with this scene, I am ashamed to admit, I closed my eyes and clenched my fists. My conscious mind had shut down, freezing me to the spot, and I resigned myself, in some wretched corner of my soul, to being touched. Strangely, I felt most in fear of this, the touch of this thing, which had all appearances of my friend but was somehow different. Like his caress of the stone idol had made me uneasy, I mentally recoiled at the prospect of him doing the same to me. All this I thought in the darkness of my mind, stimulated by a fear so profound it immobilized my physical body. Just as I thought I must surely be touched, the image of my grandmother came to me, as she was when she had, days ago, worryingly looked upon the incoming storm and recited that children's rhyme. Almost without thought, I began to recite it too. My fists unclenched and the knot in my stomach began to loosen. I opened my eyes and spoke the rhyme. What greeted my vision was not the face of my friend, but the stone man, as close to me as an arm's length. I could see up close its hewn and pockmarked face, worn away by the ages but still craving and yearning. For what, I was unsure of, only that I must not give it succor. As frightened as I was by its sudden proximity, I spoke the rhyme loudly. As I did, a strange thing occurred in the face of the stone man. It appeared at once to stretch and elongate ever so subtly, so that the mouth grew more open, this time in a true scream of madness. It retreated, pivoting from one leg to the other, as if shifted by invisible hands, and fell backwards over the crest of the island. When I ran up to the crest to look upon it, I saw nothing but the slope of the island disappearing into the river. It had disappeared from the world, 
leaving me alone with the mud, the river, and the rain. And even that seemed to be easing. When I finally returned home, maybe an hour or two later, sodden, sorry, and filthy, my grandmother had just woken. She stood in the hallway of our bungalow house and looked at me sideways in a way that was almost unbelieving. Darling, you forgot your boot, she said absent-mindedly. Then, as if in a dream, she plodded to the kitchen and began making two cups of hot chocolate. I looked down at my muddy feet, one wearing a gumboot, the other lacking, which I had lost on the mud bank. Then I cleaned up so that no evidence of my misadventure could be detected. I have moved away from where I grew up. I haven't seen that island for many years. But when the rain comes and the world is transformed, I think perhaps I spy in the reflection of a puddle or fountain my old friend. When I am especially tired, I fancy that he is beckoning with one hand for me to join him to go to another world that we only see glimpses of when it rains. But then, I'm sure it is not him at all, but the face of the stone man, its eyes and mouth running with water, yearning to be touched. If you'd like to hear more of Listen to the Dark... You can subscribe to my RSS feed at listentothedark.com or follow me on soundcloud.com forward slash listen to the dark. Thanks for listening. Listen to the Dark is produced by myself, David Blackwell. This recording or the original stories featured may not be reproduced without permission.